weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Now hear the word of the Lord from Romans 8, verse 28 to 32. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon, Emmanuel. Good afternoon. Uh, Jason and Bev are, are precious to us. Uh, during, during Christmas time, we got to uh, spend time with them. They, they took us to the best Christmas lights of the OC. So um, I want you next year um, to tell Bev and Jason, show us the Christmas lights. And, and you will be amazed of where they take you. So um, with that said, let me offer a, a, a short prayer of illumination. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Lord, your law is our meditation, and may we delight in your word and your ways. What we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? For the glory of your son's name, Jesus, we pray this in his name. Amen. Um, open your Bibles to uh, Romans 8. That's, that's our passage this afternoon. And I want you to consider two questions with me. Two simple questions. Uh, the first question is, are you saved? And the second question is, are you sure? So are you saved and are you sure? And one of the many duties I have besides preaching God's word is, just like Jason, do membership interviews. And in these membership interviews, we, we ask people, uh, we do two things in our membership interviews. Number one, we want to get to know people. And, and number two, we, we, we are wondering whether they have a credible profession of faith. So even in our membership application, it, it says, uh, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure if you would go to heaven? And, uh, and, and, and what would you say to God if, if, if that were the case? And I find it, especially in the immigrant church, uh, people coming from Roman Catholicism, they, they find difficulty with that question. That question is not supposed to be a trick question. And, and they find difficulty with that because what happens usually is that people start looking within and they start looking for some reasons why they are sure they are saved. And in other words, they're looking for some form of self-justification, whether they attend church or whether they uh, do good deeds or or so forth. And uh, one of the things I do every year in my personal Bible reading is kind of switch it up. So one of the things I switched it up uh, this, this past year is to read historic Protestant confessions. Historic Protestant confessions. And, and in these historic Protestant confessions, there's actually deep teaching 
on the topic of assurance. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, London Baptist uh, Confession of Faith devote whole chapters to deal with this topic of your assurance of salvation. And back in the 16th century, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, was fighting with the reformers over this doctrine. They thought that if you taught people that you can be saved and know for sure that you would go to heaven, that that would lead to lawless living. If, if you knew that you're a Christian and you're saved by grace alone as a free gift of God, then that would strengthen you to live a lawless life. And that's what the Roman Catholics feared. In these confessions, however, the, the, the Puritan divines acknowledge that there are some hypocrites who, who abuse the doctrine of assurance. For example, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. So you can say, I'm saved all you want, but you're, if you're living in unrepentant sin, that, that hope will perish. But, the divines would also say, yet as truly those who believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. And if you are assured of your salvation, this will give you greater boldness in your Christian life. This will give you a greater assurance of God's love for you in your Christian life. This will help you evangelize if you know you're a child of God. Again, when they're teaching on the subject of assurance, they, they look to three things, three things in assurance. Uh, number one, the promises of God. Number two, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And number three, the testimony of a good conscience and good works. Those three things form together the doctrine of Christian assurance. And let me read the Westminster Confession again. And the London Baptist says the same exact thing. They say, This certainty is not based on bare um, our probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidences of those graces unto which these promises are made, and the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. So there it is. The promises of God, the external promises of God, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit manifest in your life through good conscience and good works. The reformers were not against good works. They, they were against good works as being the ground of salvation. The ground of our salvation is Christ and Christ alone. But if you're saved, the fruit that you display will be good works and a holy life. Uh, John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that, uh, John Lee posted on his Instagram that he has a stack of Pilgrim's Progress. Please just take one from him. <laughs> and uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, it's the allegory of the Christian life Christian uh, veers off the narrow way, and he finds himself in a castle. You know what that castle is called? It's called Doubting Castle. And in, in uh, Doubting Castle, there's a big giant there. And that giant is called Giant Despair. And Giant Despair wants to chain Christian 
kill Christian, beat Christian, to the point where Christian is in prison and he is, he is so discouraged that he even wants to take his own life. And then he realizes that there was something hidden in his pocket all along. And then in that, in that pocket, he pulls out a key. And do you know what that key is called? It's called the promise of God. It's called the promise of God. And that's what I want to focus on in Romans chapter 8. This glorious promise where we can find assurance. And uh, as our sister read, uh, yeah, she read from Romans 8, 28 to all the way to 32. Romans 8 has been called the, the greatest chapter in the Bible. Romans 8, 28 is the greatest promise in the Bible. And I would argue, some would argue, that Romans 8, 32 is the, the greatest verse in the Bible. It's the John 3, 16 of Romans. And in this passage, Paul gives us three proofs. Three proofs to assure you of your salvation so that you would know that you are a child of God. The first proof God gives us is that God is for us in salvation. The second proof, God is for us in opposition. And the third proof, God is for us in provision. God is for us in salvation. God is for us in opposition. And God is for us in provision. So first, God is for us in salvation. Like I said, all Christians at some point in their life have wrestled with the doctrine of assurance. Um, our church, uh, my former senior pastor, he, he, uh, he did altar calls. So I did seven of those things. And uh, every time my pastor would say, at the end of the service, you know, everyone bow, bow your head, close your eyes, and uh, if you're not sure, if you're not sure if you were to die tonight, if you were to go to heaven, I just want you to raise your hand. I raised my hand like seven times over the period of like three years because I lacked assurance. I was even a Sunday school teacher at one point. And the Sunday school teacher is walking up. <laughs> and the Sunday school teacher's not even saved. <laughs> so, and, and, and that got me until I finally understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wrestled with assurance. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrestled with assurance. He thought as he was reading Romans that the righteousness of God referred to the judging righteousness of God, that he could never live up to God's standard. And it's only when he understood that the righteousness of God is the gift that God gives or he imputes to sinners, that's when he said that the Bible it opened up like heaven to me. It was paradise to me. And then he finally gained his assurance on the promise of God, Romans 1, 16 and 17. John Bunyan I mentioned. He was walking through the fields, he was having blasphemous thoughts, and then something struck in him where he says, you know what, my righteousness is not within me, my righteousness is in heaven, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gained assurance, and a new strength to follow the Lord. So when I say God is for us in salvation, salvation means to be delivered from something, to be rescued from something. You think about the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt, and to be saved was to be delivered from Pharaoh and slavery. And in Romans, the Bible tells us that the fundamental problem that all humanity faces, you know, is our sin. We need to be rescued from the wrath of God because there's a good and righteous, holy God who does not sweep sin under the rug, who will punish every single one of our sins because that's his character and that's his character demands that he punishes sin. 
And Paul has described that in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. All have turned away from God. There is no one who seek God. We, we worship the creature rather than the creator. Instead of giving thanks, we were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Even the religious people who had God's law broke God's law by being hypocrites. And Paul tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then verse 31, he says, What then shall we say to these things? Now, the question is, what is Paul referring to regards to these things? Now, commentators think that Paul is just describing verses 28 to 30, the golden chain of salvation, those whom he foreknew, he predestined those he predestined, he called those whom he called, he justified those whom he justified, he glorified. So they think that within the context, these things refer to that golden chain of salvation. Other commentators think about Romans chapter 5 through 8, as Paul describes that we have peace with God in Romans chapter 5, uh, we have new life in Christ in chapter 6. Uh, the struggle of the flesh and the spirit in Romans 7, no condemnation in Christ in chapter 8. But I think Paul is summarizing all of Romans 8 for us, chapters 1 through 8. So what shall we say to these things? Well, in chapter 1, verse 16, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That the gospel is able to change a human heart, to remove a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Well, in chapter 2, that's exactly what we need, a new heart, a circumcision, not an external one, but one that is internal, one that's of the heart. In chapter 3, he says that we have been justified, declared righteous legally by, by faith alone. That the ground of our justification to be declared righteous is not our own works, but the ground of our justification is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Who, who gave himself to satisfy God's wrath, to redeem us from the slave market of sin. And this was all a gift. That in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. Jesus says, I did not come to call righteous people. I called sinners to repent. That God justifies the ungodly. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we, we have peace with God. That no longer is God's wrath against us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have peace with God presently. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that there's now where the law came to increase the trespass, where the law shows us like a mirror all of our sins, all of our flaws, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Superbounded. Romans chapter 6, there is now new life in God. We've been buried with Christ in His death and we were raised to life in a newness of life Romans chapter 6 we have the free gift of God the free gift of God which is eternal life Romans chapter 6 23 it's all free you don't have to pay it back you simply receive this divine gift deliverance from this body of death Romans chapter 7 verse 25 who will deliver me from this wretched body thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord and then Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. God has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us the hope of future glory. Romans 8 verse 18, all things are working together for good. Even the evil things that we experience in this world, God as the divine artist is pulling all those things together for our good 
and for his glory. So he says, what shall we say to these things? Is there any words to express the blessings that accompany salvation and what Jesus has purchased for us? What shall we say to these things? It's a rhetorical question. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where the law came to increase trespass, grace abounded all the more. What shall we say to these things? There's no words. We know God is for us because He's given us Christ. He's given us a complete, sufficient Christ where it's enough. Jesus paid it all, it's enough. I don't have to do anything to earn my salvation because the work of Christ is enough. His work in His prophetic ministry, His priestly ministry, and His kingly ministry. You know, some quotes still just stick with you. Um, as you read good Christian books, and, and this is the price you should buy Calvin's Institutes just for this quote. He says this. This is chapter 2, I think, uh, in, in uh, Calvin's book. Well, there's four, four books. He says, he says that we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity in his conception, if gentleness it appears in his birth, if we seek redemption, it lies in his passion, if acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of the heavenly kingdom in his entrance into heaven, if protection, if security, if abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, if trouble expectation of judgment and the power given to him to judge. In short, since every kind of good abound in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and no other. You see what Calvin's doing? He's saying, look to Christ. Everything you need is found in him, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. The problem where Christians begin to doubt is they start looking inwardly. There's a place for that. Because again, when you are living in unrepentant sin and there's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then you should examine yourself. But where we get our assurance is by looking not within ourselves, but looking outside of ourselves. See, the lie of our culture tells us that salvation is found within. When the gospel tells you that salvation is found outside of you, you cannot save yourself. Only God can save. So when you doubt your salvation, you must look to Christ and his promise. One reformer said to know Christ is to know his benefits. That's Melanchthon. Do you know the benefits that you have in Christ? And beloved, don't, don't ever let people say to you that doctrine is not practical. Doctrine is what gives the nutrients that solidifies our faith. We need sound doctrine to ground us in our assurance in Christ. Corey Temboom, she came from a Dutch Reformed Calvinistic church. She was um, trying to save Jews during World War II, and eventually she was betrayed and, and caught. 
her, her sister, her father, um, go to a concentration camp. Before their release, her father dies, her sister Betsy dies, and uh, her sister says to uh, Betsy, says to Corey Tembo, there is no pit of hell where God is not deeper still. And then she passed away to glory. And throughout her entire life, experiencing suffering like that, uh, Corey Temboom says, when you look at the world, you'll be in despair. When you look within, you'll be depressed. But when you look to Christ, you'll be at rest. You must look to Christ. You must look outside of yourself. Salvation is not found within yourself. It's found in Christ and God's promises to you. I think it was McShane who says, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. God is for you in Christ. He has shown his favor to you in Christ. Our sin causes us to be against God, but Christ has come to pay for our sin so that he can be for us, so that he can be merciful to us. And beloved, this is why the rhythms of private and public worship is so important to help us see Christ. And maybe some of you have been taught biblical theology, but in biblical theology, you see that the whole Bible fits together and Christ is the key that unlocks the Bible. So we don't, we don't read the Bible as a moral rule book or a list of tasks that we fulfill. We read it to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Uh, I, there was, um, you've probably seen this, but uh, you know, a few years ago there was a famous violinist who was in Washington, D.C., and he just dressed in normal clothes, and um, he started playing the violin um, in the Washington, D.C. Um, subway. And uh, I think he received like 30 bucks, where if, if you were to go to one of his concerts, it would have cost like over a thousand bucks or so to go see this famous Violinists. People were too busy to see what was right in front of them. And so many times, Christians, we, we read the Bible trying to just get the task or trying to get the, the, fulfill the Bible reading plan without seeing Christ. And we, we miss it completely when it's right in front of us. We miss the good news. So we, we must be on guard to let anything distract us from seeing the glory of Christ. And, and as we gather as a church, the rhythm of public worship, we must sing of Christ. We must pray Christ. We must see Christ in the sacraments. We must preach Christ. We must hear of Christ. We must confess Christ in the creeds and the confessions. And we must come to Christ if we have not done so. That's the point of the Bible. So God is for us in salvation. But second of all, He is for us in opposition. He is for us in opposition. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, the word should be translated since. Since God is for us. It's not, it's not that if is not communicating doubt. It's really communicating that God really is for us. Since God is for us, who can be against us? And in this world, in this world, there are, there are things that oppose the Christian. Uh, four things I can think of. Number one, the flesh the world, the devil, and death. Four things that oppose us. Uh, we know that the flesh opposes us. Uh, flesh, Paul uses it often to refer to the, the desires that are contrary to the will of God. 
We, we live in a consumer society that appeals to our flesh. Social media appeals to our flesh. The algorithms appeal to your flesh. Augustine, the church father, says, Lord, deliver me from my worst enemy, that wicked man myself. The world opposes us. I've been trying to uh, read a bunch of uh, books that try to analyze culture. Um, two books in particular stand out to me, Remaking the World by Andrew Wilson. Um, that's an excellent book of how we got to where we are today. Um, one of my favorite books last year was uh, Five, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by Rosaria Butterfield. And uh, she says that our culture lives off these five lies. Number one, homosexuality is normal. Number two, being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. Number three, feminism is good for the world and the church. Number four, transgenderism is normal. And number five, modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. And this is what our culture believes, and she packs a punch. She's not to con afraid to, con to confront the cultures and their lies. And, and she says this in the introductory chapter of her book. She says, we all live in Babel now because people exchange the truth for lies and have codified these lies into the law of the land. And Christians will be persecuted because distinctions and hierarchies are called abusive and true spirituality is found inside of ourselves. So if we stand for biblical truths, basic biblical truths, just like even as marriage is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage, the world will oppose you. We, we stand for the exclusivity of Christ, salvation found outside of you, not inside of you. The world will oppose you. Spurgeon said, you are an enemy. You are an enemy's country. And this enemy is on alert continually. You may sleep, but the world never sleeps. Its customs are always seeking to bind you with their chains. Its spirit is creeping over you while you are on the exchange, or in the market, or even in the family. And you will find the very atmosphere of this world tends to make you sleep as do others. This world is not our home. So the flesh opposes us. The world opposes us. The evil one opposes us. That's, that's, that's Satan's name. Satan's name is adversary. The accuser. Death opposes us. Death opposes us that because of the curse of sin, we all die. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What did God do? Well, God sent his son, Romans 8, 2 and 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So Christ was condemned in the flesh. That's why he had to become a man. So that he can break the power of the flesh in our own lives. By giving us his spirit. What about the world? The world may hate and persecute Christians. But the Bible tells us our faith has overcome this world. First John 5. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the what? The world. Our faith is what conquers this world. The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to prevent them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But the same power that created 
and, 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 and created this universe, the same power that has given us spiritual life and that will keep us. So we shouldn't be mopey Christians thinking that how the secular culture has hijacked America. Friends, our citizenship is in heaven, not in America. We're first citizens of heaven before we are citizens of America. That's our first and primary identity. And again, Spurgeon says, Christ became a man for you, therefore be a man for Christ in this world. Stand up for the truth. Stand up for the gospel. The devil? Well, First John tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation 12 they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. We overcome the evil one by the blood of the cross. Spurgeon again says, The devil is mighty, but God is almighty. Satan is strong, but all strength belongeth unto God. What is Satan, after all, but an enemy who has had his head broken? He is a broken-headed dragon. The Lord has a hook in his nose and a bridle in his jaws, and he knows how to pull him back. As Luther would say, the devil is God's devil. He's a chained devil. Can God even condemn the believer? I don't have time to go into it, but it's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand, who is indeed interceding for us. Christ was condemned, now he is alive, now he stands in heaven as a great high priest who intercedes for you every single day. And pleads his blood, and pleads our case that makes us acceptable before a holy God. Can death conquer us? Well, this is why we gather on Sundays, right? Jesus Christ is risen. He is alive. We don't serve a dead Savior. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We have overcome the world, the flesh and the devil and death itself, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God shows that he is for us. He is for us in salvation. He is for us in opposition. And friend, if you are at peace with sin, then you are at war with God. If you are against God, you are for Satan and his rebellion. When you give in to your sin and your flesh, you are listening to the enemy. And because of original sin, that's how we were all born into this world. We were born dead in trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed the lust of our flesh. And by nature, we were by children of wrath. But God has made a way through Christ to make us alive. Even though we were dead, by grace you have been saved. To the finished work of Christ. So Christian, when the devil tempts you to despair, you tell the devil, the Lord Jesus died and rose again for me. And in heaven stands my mediator who pleads my case and his work is sufficient. And as the world opposes the church, a famous saying 
that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God will continue to build his church even though the gates of hell war against him. And we have hope of this future glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So friend, God is for you in salvation. God is for you in opposition. Finally, God is for you in provision. I think Christmas is my favorite holiday. And that's because um, uh, as a father now, it's the joy of seeing my, my children open up their gifts and the smiles and the joy and the laughter. Well, as we just entered into this new year, we, we know that God is the ultimate gift giver. He, he doesn't give you something that breaks the next day. He doesn't give you something that is donated to Goodwill. He gives you far more something better than any material thing he could offer you. He gives you something that will last eternally. And what does he give us? What does the gift giver give us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice the gift giver. It's he, God the Father, who gave the son. There's an early heresy in the church that separated the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament, saying that the God of the Old Testament was the God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament was the God of love. But this passage tells us it was God who gave the Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. It was God who sent the Son into the world. God is the fountain of all blessings. And notice the gift that He gives us. He, he gives us not our wants. He, he doesn't mess up on the gift. But he gives us what we really need. There was a story in December that was told that uh, a sweet elderly couple wanted to bless their children and grandchildren, all 16 of them, by buying a trip to Disney World. Have any of you heard this story? Uh, they spent $10,000 to give them a dream vacation. The only problem was that they bought them $10,000 in Disney Plus gift cards. So this 16 children and grandchildren had a lifetime supply to watch Disney Plus for the rest of their life. Thankfully, Disney, because of a PR, I'm sure, credited the poor couple back their 10 grand so that they go to Disney World. But the point is, God doesn't mess up on gifts. He doesn't give you a gift that you need to repackage and give to someone else. Again, he gives you what you need. This is a great quote from Don Carson. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have given us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. So he sent us a savior. Sent us a savior. He who did not spare up his own son. That's the language that we read in Genesis. Abraham, give your son. And, and, and ultimately Isaac was spared because one day God would not spare his own son. And it says, he gave him up for us all. The word delivered him up. That's the same language of Judas delivering Jesus up 
to the authorities, and authorities delivering up Jesus to Pilate. But it's God who ultimately delivers up his own son, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. It was the will of the Lord to crush his own son. It was the will of the Lord to lay upon his own son all of our iniquity. You want to know whether God loves you? Well, Calvary is the supreme example of the Father's love. Look to the cross. And notice he, he gives it for us all. And again, the, the, the for us all is not the whole world. It's the us all that is in Romans 8.28. Those who are justified, those who are called, those whom he glorifies. It's, it's for believers. And God has given us his son so that we could share in his life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the, the giver gives the best gift, his son. And then he says that if God gave us the best, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul's doing? He's, he's doing a greater to lesser argument. A greater to lesser argument. Um, so for my, my kids' birthdays, we, we don't do birthday parties because we, we do something together as a family. And I hate it when the kids ask to go to theme parks because do you know how much theme parks are for a family of seven? Especially if they want to go to Disneyland. That's a lot of money. So, so if we're willing to, to fork out an arm and a leg to that godless place on, on earth, that God, the most godless place on earth, and they ask for me, hey, can I buy, can I buy a lollipop? If I have given them an arm and a leg and all my income to this godless mouse, how will I not give them a couple bucks to buy a lollipop? That's a greater to lesser argument. You see that? If, if, if God has given you his very best, how will he not give you graciously, freely give you all things? And that all things is not prosperity gospel here. It's not saying that God, because he's given you son, he's going to give you that new Tesla you've always eyed, giving that beachside house that you want in the OC, or what's that, Jason, in that, that community? Um, Lakeside Village with all the nice Christmas lights with a man-made lake where I said I would have to sell my soul if I have to live here. Um, that, it doesn't mean that he's going to give you that th those things. When he says all things, all things necessary to conform you to the image of his son. By the way, that includes suffering. That includes suffering. That includes afflictions. He will give you all things that will contribute to your conformity to the image of his very own son. John Calvin says, For except we have God be propitious to us, though all things should smile on us, yet no sure confidence can be attained. But on the other hand, his favor alone is a sufficient solace in every sorrow, a protection sufficiently strong against all the storms of adversities. All things that God will give you are all things necessary to make you like Jesus. So Christian, when you hear the unexpected phone call or the diagnosis that you did not want to hear. I want you to let this truth comfort you that if God is for you, nothing can be against you. If you are doubting God's love, look to the cross, which is the supreme example of God's love for you. And if God has been so generous to us, then we as Christians should be the most generous people 
Because we have all things. We have God. So Christian, I ask you, are you saved? And then do you know? Well, Christian, God is for you in salvation. What shall we say to these things? God is for us in opposition. If God is for us, since God is for us, who can be against us? And thirdly, God is for us in provision. He is for us in provision. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How we not graciously with him give us all things. See, the devil's greatest lie is to tell us that God is not good and God does not love us. And we listen to his lies. But the gospel tells us that God is good and that God does love us. And the greatest blessing in the gospel is to know that God is for you and he is with you and he has proven that to you in his son. So look to Christ. Look to external promise of God to find your confidence again. Now, um, I don't know about you, but if, if you have thought about what you want written on your tombstone, this is a really cool one that you might consider. Contra mundum. Contra mundum. That's a Latin phrase for against the world. Athanasius was a famous church father and defender of the Orthodox Christian faith. He was a, a bishop of Alexandria. He was exiled five times uh, under the threat of persecution and death by the emperor and by false teachers, the Arians. And yet, in his life, he was responsible for, for what we know as the Nicene Creed, or the Council of Nicaea, to, to protect the true nature of Christ and the nature of the Trinity. And uh, in Athanasius' tombstone, it reads, Contra Mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. But it also reads, Athanasius, God was for you, though the whole world was against you. So he could be against the whole world because he knew that God was for him. So Christian, if you are doubting God's love, I ask you to turn your eyes to Calvary again. Turn your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who proves that God is for you. He is for you in salvation, in opposition, and He is for you in provision. He has given you the greatest thing. How will He not give you lesser things? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the simple gospel message. Thank you that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Thank you that there is nothing that we can give back to this gift that you have given us in your Son. And not only have you given us your Son, you have given us your Holy Spirit by which we are able to see the glory of Christ. So Lord, help us to look to Christ again and sing of his glory all the days of our lives because of what has been accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Thank you.